Our Father, we come before you this Resurrection Sunday morning um, keenly aware of this truth that you, Jesus, rose victorious over sin, death, and hell so that we could be redeemed from those things. And we, we want to take this morning and acknowledge the the, the, the authenticity, the veracity, and the power of the gospel was accomplished because you rose from the tomb. So we magnify and glorify you for that victory. We thank you for moments like this we have set aside on the calendar where we just stop and pause and notice more than perhaps on other Sundays how much we have to be grateful for and how much we have to look forward to. We magnify you, O oh God, for your plan to redeem sinners. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for your work in our hearts individually and in this congregation corporately. We pray that this morning all that happens here would be glorifying to you and encouragement to the saints and that it would convict those who are yet in their unbelief of the truth of the gospel. We ask for this in Jesus' beautiful name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. <clears throat> John chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to make our way through the first 18 verses, but it's not my intention to, to preach a verse-by-verse -verse exposition because I want to focus on one of the characters in this text more than the others. John 20, beginning at verse 1, says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. In the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, <clears throat> that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will come take him away. <clears throat> Jesus said to her, Mary. 
She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Um, I imagine that this text is being preached in churches all around the world today, and doubtless by men who um, are more well-trained, at least, than I am. Uh, So I want to begin by just giving you a a real simple encouragement and a reminder. Whatever else is true, God has called this body of believers and some visitors here today in this place for more than a sermon. And God help us if the only thing that happens here is you hear from James. So let's be encouraged that he's in our midst and that he's going to use his word and it won't return to him void. Amen? Amen. All right. 76 miles northwest of Jerusalem, on the northwest edge of the Sea of Galilee, was in ancient times a little town called Magdala. Residents of Magdala were called Magdaleans. Mary of Magdala became known as Mary Magdalene as a consequence of where she came from. So this is not one of the rare saints in scripture for whom we have a first and last name. Uh, Magdalene is a reference to her city of origin. Um, Because of a a few tidbits that have become popular in our culture, we misunderstand some things about Mary Magdalene. So I want to be really clear and just show you what the scripture has to tell us about her. So if you would, just turn back in your Bible to Luke chapter 8. Luke 8, I'm going to read the first three verses. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Harold's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Partly because of the proximity of those verses to the previous chapter where you see the woman who comes and weeps at Jesus' feet and anoints him and cleans his feet with her tears and hair. People have kind of assumed that that woman in that account is Mary Magdalene. But Luke doesn't uh, communicate that. And while I'll admit it's a possibility, I'm not inclined to think that it's the same person. Um, But it is a possibility. Uh, Because of the movie The Passion of the Christ, um, some people think that Mary is the same woman whom Jesus rescued from stoning in John chapter 8, in the first 11 verses of John 8. Uh, John doesn't communicate that. In fact, there's some argument as to whether John even wrote John 8, 1 through 11. 
Um, and none of the other gospel writers communicate that either, but because uh, Mel Gibson added that tidbit in his movie, a lot of people have become convinced of that, which shows you how easy it is to convince people of things. Uh, and, and then my favorite one, because of the book, The Da Vinci Code, some people think that Mary and Jesus were husband and wife. Uh, that's not only wrong, that's idiotic. Jesus' bride is the church. And it would be a strange thing for the perfect son of God to have had two wives. Um, so this is what we know about Mary of Magdala. She had seven demons and Jesus cast them out. That's what we know about her. And we know that she traveled with Jesus and his disciples from the time that she came to knew him, know him until the very end and supported them out of her own means. Um, in in John 19, just, just maybe not even a page back from where we are this morning, verse 25. It says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So she was among the last ones at the cross, and she was the first one at the tomb on resurrection morning. This woman loved Jesus very much. When I'm preparing a sermon, one of the things that I try not to do is consult other books and other commentators until I have all of my own main points established in my mind. So I spend about an hour every morning of the week when I get up um, going over the text and, and then going over cross-references and kind of meditating on what it is that I think I might want to say on Sunday. And, and I avoid opening any of my commentaries until Saturday because if I do open my commentaries, what you will hear is that sermon and not the one that Jesus Christ once preached here this morning. Now, that might be superstitious on my part, but that's the way I operate. Unfortunately, because I operate that way, there are Saturdays where we get up to three, four in the afternoon, and I'm still not sure how it is that I'm going to illustrate my point. I may know what it is, but I don't know how I'm going to communicate it, and that's not acceptable to me. I'm not going to roll the dice and come up here and see what happens on a Sunday morning. So there have been occasions, and it happened yesterday, where I get all the way to the point where I have no other hope and I have to go to the bookshelf and pull out a commentary. And that's what happened yesterday. In fact, it was about 1.30. I put my head down on my desk and wondered for just a minute if I'm up to the task. And asked God, can I do this? Can I work a full-time job and put together a decent sermon for Easter? I need help. And so... Going against my own preferences, I walked over to my bookshelf and I got my favorite commentary on John out. Now, J.C. Ryle wrote a four-volume set of commentaries on the Gospels, and two of them are on John. So he, he was very detailed. So I, I pull the commentary out, I sit down at my desk, and I do this thing where I look at the cover, and I take a deep breath, and then I look, you know, you turn a book up, and look at it like this and try to guess, like, where in here is John 20 going to be? And I, I figure, all right, back quarter, we're towards the end. So back quarter, and then I crack it open, 
and congratulated myself because at the top of the right-facing page on every page in the commentary is what chapter he's commentating on, and I opened it right to John 21 through 8. How amazing of me. <laughs> the problem was I quickly realized that the reason I had opened it there was there was this scrap of paper stuck in the commentary right at John 20. One through eight. The first thing I recognized about this piece of paper, and some of you will also recognize it, <laughs> is that it's torn off of a bulletin from the old place. So I had a moment of like, ugh. And then I looked here and saw chicken scratch handwriting that definitely is not mine. This is not my handwriting. And I read the note, and here's what it says I have done a lot of stupid crap, drugs, Drinking, stealing. I'm sorry, but I think it's too late for me. If people knew half of what I'd done, they would not believe me. When is it too late? For the past 10 years, I took the youth from church to youth camp. And one of the things that I started doing a few years ago is I would have a box set up in the main meeting room with a lid on it and a, a slot cut into the lid with a pad of paper and a pen next to it. And the offer was if the youth wanted to write a question or a note and they, they, because they, weren't, they didn't want to like come and be associated with the question, they wanted some anonymity, they could do that and just throw it in the box with the promise that we, the me or whoever the camp speaker was, we would address their question publicly so that they could get an answer without having to go through the horror of admitting it was them. Um, I'm pretty certain that's where this note came from. I got a lot of anonymous notes over the years, enough that I have no memory of this one. And I don't remember bringing it home with me. I was careful to shred those notes after, after camp. But I brought this one home and I slipped it into the commentary precisely at John 20. And I wondered why. The question at hand in the note is, when is it too late? My question is, why does this young person think it might already be? What is it that they're going through that makes them think it's too late? And I know how I answered the question without any memory of receiving the note or actually answering it. I know how I answered the question because I know where I found the note. John 20, 1 through 18 answers the question, when is it too late? Why else would I have put the note where I put the note? So John 23 through 10 tells us the principal thing. Jesus was not in the tomb. Right? You've got Peter and John going and verifying it after Mary claims it. Uh, we already know from John that Peter was a sinful man, right? And we already know from John that John was the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? And now we find out that they have settled the question that they have been asking since the inception of his ministry, which is, which of us is the greatest? They got settled with a foot race. John 1. Now, we can't ask Peter if that's true, and John's the one that wrote this, but I think it's safe to assume that he did win, thus establishing dominance over all other disciples. <laughs> what they observed was the empty tomb. 
What they also observed is that it was not a case of grave robbing, which was common in those days, because a grave robber doesn't leave behind the linen wrappings, and they certainly aren't going to nicely fold up the face cloth and set it aside. They're just going to unceremoniously remove the body and be done with it. So they observed all of that, and then they both went home. That's it. That's what happened. And John makes it seem like they took no notice of Mary as they did so. John does make a remark that he saw and believed, but it's obvious he didn't fully comprehend what he had seen and believed. And then verse 12 shows us Mary weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. So why is Mary weeping? Is she weeping because she misses Jesus? Is she weeping because she's sad about what happened to him? Is she weeping because she had some attachment to his physical body? I mean, it's not as if seeing him dead was going to do anything to improve her emotional circumstances, right? Maybe it was the shock of the whole series of events culminating in seeing the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Maybe she's weeping because she thought he would live forever. That's reasonable. A miracle worker like Jesus, who it said he was the son of God and was Messiah, there's probably some disappointment going on in her heart. Maybe she's weeping because she keeps replaying the events of the crucifixion over and over and over and over again in her head. I know that's what I would have been doing. Maybe she's weeping because she's picturing those soldiers throwing dice to see who would get his clothes. That had to be hard to watch. Or because she keeps seeing his head bleeding under that crown of thorns. Or she she remembers the way his back bled where the flesh had been torn from the flogging. Maybe she's weeping because of the way he stumbled under the weight of the cross or the way his breath at the end came in such ragged, tormented gasps or because he had taken time to honor his mother as he hung there. Maybe she's weeping because she could still hear his voice crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? Or because he had asked God to forgive them all because they didn't know what they were doing. Maybe she was weeping because she couldn't get the picture of Jesus breathing his last breath out of her mind's eye and the corresponding crushing disappointment that surely she felt. Those are all good reasons to weep, right? Mm -hmm. I understand why Mary was weeping, do you? Mm -hmm. So why this next part? In, in, in verse 12, it says, She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one of the feet, one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So first the angels, and then Jesus, 
ask Mary the same question. Why are you weeping? And maybe the answer is all the things I've already said. Maybe the answer is the one that she gave. I just don't know where the body is. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. But I also think it was something else entirely. Let's see if you agree with me. If Jesus is dead, who's going to save Mary now? Peter said it in the end of John 6 when the disciples start walking away. Like, oof, who can comprehend this stuff? This is too much. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, do you all want to go with them? And Peter says, there's nowhere else to go. You alone have the words of life. And spoke, I think, the heart of all the disciples and, and these women who were with Jesus banned through his entire ministry. The fact is, a dead Savior saves nobody. Look at Luke 11. Bearing in mind that Mary had been saved from seven evil spirits, Luke eleven twenty four had to have really resonated with Mary when she heard Jesus speak these words. Luke eleven twenty four says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes... It finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So you have Jesus describing a situation where somebody is demon possessed. And by some circumstance, he doesn't specify the demon is cast out of this person or leaves this person. The person, now free of the bondage of this demon, begins to put their life in order. They get a job. They get married. They clean themselves up. They start to make something of themselves that has dignity, worth, and value. But what they have is an empty vessel because this is not somebody in whom the Holy Spirit now dwells. This is somebody who's just gotten their life together. And the demon that originally went out wanders wherever the waterless places are and eventually finds his way back to the demon-possessed man who had been rid of it and sees a much better situation than he had left. So he goes and gets seven friends and brings them back with him. Now this man has a legion of demons. Well, Mary had seven and Jesus cast them out. If those seven bring back seven, now we're up to 49. What hope does she have? If Jesus is dead, he saved her from that horror show, but now he's gone. Who's going to keep those demons from coming back? Who's going to protect her from evil now? Who's going to assure her of God's love now? Who's going to ward off evil spirits? The one that saved her is dead. She's going to have to figure it out on her own. She's going to have to defend herself. And she's going to have to give an account someday to the judge of all the universe for how she did. She's going to have to outrun these demons. Of course, Mary is weeping. It's almost cruel that the angels and Jesus ask her why she's weeping. 
almost. The question at hand, though, is when is it too late? When have you outsinned the grace of God? When is hope lost? How do you know that there's still love available from the throne in heaven? How do you know that there's still mercy available for you, still kindness, still forgiveness? That the face of God towards you is not one made up of anger and resentment, but one made up of an entreaty of love. How do you know? Jesus rose again. That's how you know. And Mary's weeping, and Jesus asks her why. Because she should have figured it out maybe a little bit more quickly. Or maybe he wanted to really drive the point home. There is nothing left to weep about so far as your soul is concerned. I'm victorious over everything that might threaten you, spiritually speaking. And because Jesus is not dead, the grace of God cannot run out. He's alive. And he's the savior of sinners, of whom I assure you, I am chief of all. Because I sin against more light than anybody else that I know. And Paul wrote and said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I'll tell you when it's too late. It's too late when you die, having refused to believe. It's too late when you die, denying his lordship. It's too late when you die, hardening your own heart. But if you want Jesus to save you from sin and from death, he lives to do so. That's why he's alive. That's why he couldn't stay dead. And my favorite part of this whole account, he's calling you by name to believe in him. Something about the way Jesus pronounced her name, made her realize who it was that was speaking when before she didn't. You're not used to seeing dead people up walking around. It's reasonable to understand why Jesus looks at this person and thinks, that's the gardener. Plus, I think his appearance had probably changed a little bit over the time that he was in the grave. Jesus said to her, verse 16, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, teacher. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. If you want relief, from fear and shame and guilt, which all come from sin, then you need to embrace Jesus by faith. I'm so glad that there was nothing special about the fact that Mary was able to hug Jesus' body. That in fact, he says, don't cling to me. Our relationship is going to be more profound and more wonderful than it ever was before, but it's not a physical one, first and foremost. 
You need not grasp Jesus physically. You need only embrace him by faith. You need only believe. You need only trust. And he will save you from sin, which will redeem you from fear and shame and guilt and all of the accompanying negativity that comes with having lived the life of sin and self. The promise of the resurrection is that he's victorious. Mm -hmm. Nothing can harm you if you are his. Cling to him by faith. Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. Amen. Amen.